0: I'm delighted that you've made it your decision to be with us tonight, and I hope you brought your Bible with you and eager to study with us as we talk about things that have to do with serving God and going to heaven. We've been dealing with some things that are first principle in their nature. The elders have asked that I deal with first principle studies. Tonight we'll be talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow night I'll remind you that we are talking about will only those in the church of Christ be saved? And then on Wednesday evening, we'll talk about the conversion of the 3,000. And then on Thursday, we'll talk about grace, faith, and works. And then on Friday, we'll talk about the new birth. Bring your friends and neighbors and come for a part of those studies if you can. The gospel message, as has been revealed, that we talked about yesterday morning, that is inspired of God, that gospel message is a redemptive message. It is a redemption that is available only through the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed upon the cross of Calvary, in the shedding of that blood. We don't talk enough about the blood of Jesus Christ and how that blood relates to our salvation. We're not doing enough preaching and teaching on the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to talk about the blood of Christ. We need to preach about the blood of Christ. We need to think about how it relates to our salvation. So let's begin our study tonight by talking about the story of his crucifixion. And just in a nutshell, summarize the shedding of his blood in his crucifixion. And so let's go back to the case of the crucifixion and talk about Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus died, he died as a criminal. Now don't don't misunderstand, I did not say he was a criminal or that he died because he was a criminal, but he died the death that a criminal would die. That is, he was crucified, which was a form of execution, as you understand. And this text illustrates that for us in Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 38. That he was crucified between two thieves. There was one on the right and the other on the left. And so he was dying the death that we would think of that was due for one who indeed was a criminal. They crucified Jesus. In the crucifixion of Jesus, you'll remember that they drove nails into his hands. In John chapter 20, when Thomas wanted to ev- wanted to see evidence that indeed this was the one that had been raised from the dead, Jesus showed him his hands and showed him the prints of the nails within his hands. So there were nails that were driven into his hands. I don't know what you think of when you think of a nail, but you may be thinking of a small finished nail that is used to maybe put up trim or hang a picture. Or the largest nail that you probably have in your house would be pictured here in the uh, ...on the slide before you, the 16-penny nail. And that's what your house is framed with. If It's framed with wood. But the front nails that would have been used cru- in the form of crucifixion... ...were not like the nails that your house are framed with. It would be more like a spike. A nail that would be something like 5 to 7 inches in length. 3 eighths inch in diameter. And you think about that just for a moment... ...that when Jesus was crucified... They drove one nail into one hand and they drove another nail into another hand. And then later they take the same kind of spike or the same kind of nail and drive it into his feet. So when Jesus was crucified, he's nailed to the cross. He's dying the death of a criminal. But when he gives up the ghost and he has died, they pierced his side, John 19 and verse 34 said, and that's when he shed his blood. Look at what the text says. That when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They're clearing the crosses is what's going on. And they're speeding up the death by breaking their legs so that they drop down and they, they suffocate. And uh, therefore, they can't exhale. Jesus has already died from suffocation. But one of the soldiers pierced his sides, since they didn't break his legs, with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. His heart ruptured. And it was in his death in that crucifixion that Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. And all I'm trying to do in this first point is to get the picture before you that in his crucifixion is where Jesus shed his blood. Let's move to another point about the cross of Christ and about the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the question of why did Jesus shed his blood. Perhaps you have the question as I did when I was a child and I would hear preaching about Jesus having to die for our sins. And a Bible class teacher would say, Jesus had to go to the cross and he had to shed his blood that we might be saved. And I would wonder, isn't God the all-powerful God and can do anything that, he, that, is, that can be done? Why couldn't he save man without making Jesus die? Why couldn't he do that? Why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Well, first of all, I want to consider with you that sin demanded that a penalty or a price be paid. Please be advised that the sin by the very nature of what it is demands that a penalty be paid. If there is no penalty, there is no law. If the parent tells the child after services, do not go out the door, that's the rule, that's the law. And the child goes out the door and then the parent says, well, that's okay. You're not going to be punished. There, there, there is no consequence of that. I just wanted you to know that that was the rule. There is no rule then. If there is no penalty, there is no law. Sin, by the nature of what it is, a violation of the law, 1 John 3 and verse 4, demands that a penalty be paid. Secondly, let us consider that man cannot pay. And when I say man cannot pay, he cannot do anything so as to redeem himself. If so, what would he pay? Could man reach into his wallet and say, Well, God, I tell you what, i send a bunch and, and here's a lot of money. Can he redeem himself? What sacrifice could man make so as to redeem himself from the penalty of the sin that is committed in his life. Man has nothing with which to pay. Please understand that God has always demanded blood sacrifices. Why did God do that? Well, the reason for that is, is because life is in the blood. We might start with Genesis 9 and in verse 4. We'll not take the time to trace all the details of Leviticus 17. We'll come to that concept in a moment. But Genesis chapter 9 and in verse 4. You should not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Life being in the blood is the reason that God forbid the eating of blood, because life is in the blood. Life being in the blood is the reason that is given for capital punishment, verse 6 of Genesis chapter 9. Whosoever shed man's blood, by, man's blood, uh, by man shall his blood be shed, for he is in the image of God. Life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, that was the reason given, again, for the forbidding of the eating of blood. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 23, life is in the blood. God has always demanded blood sacrifice. Animal blood would not do that. That is, animal blood would not pay the penalty so as to remove the sin. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, Hebrews 10 and in verse 4. The only perfect blood sacrifice would be the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. And so why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Sin, by the nature of what it is, demands that a penalty be paid. If God just forgets the penalty, then there is no law. Man has nothing with which to redeem himself. God has always demanded blood sacrifice. The only perfect blood sacrifice is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. But I encourage you, if you don't already have your Bible open, let's get our Bibles open and let's trace through some very simplistic studies of some passages. As we talk about being saved by the blood, you are familiar with these texts. But let's look at these first principle lessons with reference to being saved by the blood. Let's just list a number of things that all say the same thing, but they're saying that we're saved by the blood. The Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ remits our sin. Jesus said... In Matthew 26 and verse 28, this was in the institution of the Lord's Supper. We'll come to this toward the end of our study. That in instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins, for the removal of sins. Hebrews 9 and in verse 22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So Jesus shed his blood for the remission or the removal of sins. Revelation chapter 1 and in verse 5, you might turn over to the book of Revelation chapter 1, that the blood of Jesus Christ washes us from our sins. Look at verse 5, that he loved us, I'm reading at the end of the verse, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You remember 1 John 1 and in verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So we're cleansed. Same thing as saying we're washed, but a different term that is used. Here's another term. The blood of Jesus Christ redeems us in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The parallel accounts in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and in verse 14. 1 Peter 1, we've already quoted earlier that we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we're bought back. That is, here is a price that is paid to buy us back from the bondage of sin. And here's another term that's used. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives. The idea of forgiveness is a release in turning loose and letting go. God releases the sin and lets it go through the blood of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 and in verse 20 said "We have He made peace by the blood of the cross. What does that mean, He made peace? Where at one time we were in a right relationship with God, Romans 7 and in verse 9 And then we became enemies of God, but now we've made peace with God. There's a peaceful relationship that has been created with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's another expression. That we're made nigh by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. You were aliens. You were far from God. You're brought near unto God. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 and in verse 29 says the blood of Jesus Christ sanctifies us. It sets us apart as being holy. So no longer are we sinners stained with sin, but God sets us apart and makes us holy people. How? By the blood of Christ. He counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing. Well, we're justified by the blood. Romans 5 and in verse 9. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's another expression. He purges our conscience. Our conscience is made clean by the blood of Christ. And the last I want to notice is we're reconciled. It is the idea that we once were in a relationship with God, we were restrained from God, and we're brought back together again with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, all of these expressions say the same thing. That is, we're saved by the blood, but it expresses it by remitting our sins, washing us, cleansing us, redeeming us, forgiving us, making peace, etc. Those all say that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. A price was paid. Let's go a step further. We're still asking the question, why did Jesus shed his blood? And and what does that have to do with my salvation? Why did he have to do that? We saw that a penalty demand, law demands that a penalty be paid. Man cannot pay. God demands blood sacrifice. We saw an abundance of expressions that say we're saved by the blood. Let's consider the fact that the blood of Christ had to be offered before the throne of God. You remember in the Old Testament that when the sacrifices were made, they were brought into the blood was brought into the most holy place that the high priest may offer that for himself and for the sins of the people. We saw yesterday that that was a type or a shadow or a copy, if you please, of that which was the greater to come. Jesus Christ is our high priest and that blood has to be offered. In other words, had Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and gone to the grave and stayed in the grave, we couldn't be saved. Had Jesus gone to the cross of Calvary, shed his blood, and gone to the grave and come forth from the grave, but never was ascending into heaven, we couldn't be saved. How is that? Well, let's consider this fact. That as our high priest, he offered that blood in heaven. Just as the high priest went into the most holy place, listen to this text in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, that is, heaven, Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, Jesus shed his blood on the cross, but when he was raised from the dead, he carries that blood symbolically and offers it before the throne of God in the most holy place. Look at verse 24, same chapter for Christ has not entered in the holy places made with hands. That is not the literal tabernacle, not the literal temple, but which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. There he offers his blood before the throne of God. That's the sense in which we are saved by his life. Look at Romans chapter 4.25. Jesus was delivered up be, uh, because of our offenses. You stop, just stop there just for a moment. He was delivered up for our offenses. What does that mean? Well, he was sacrificed for us. He shed his blood for us. But that's not all. And was raised because of our justification his resurrection had everything to do with our justification how so go to the next chapter chapter 5 verse 10 we are saved by his life in what sense are we saved by his life someone said well he he lived a perfect life and and he set an example well that's true but that's not what this text is talking about the context go back to chapter 4 here's your commentary on chapter 5 and in verse 10 we're saved by his life in the sense that he was raised from the dead There for him to offer the blood before the throne of God. Jesus shed his blood that we might be saved. So what have we seen so far? I I see the story of the crucifixion and in that crucifixion, Jesus shed his blood. Now, I know that he shed his blood in his crucifixion. They pierced his side. I know why he shed his blood. Let's raise the question, for whom was that blood shed? There is a doctrine that is called Calvinism and John Calvin was a very consistent thinker in the sense that he bought into all the system of Calvinism. And one of the elements of Calvinism is limited atonement wherein he thought that Jesus only died for the elect, only died for son. And here's how that works. That before creation, God looks down through all creation and sees every one of us and he picks you and you and you and you and you to be saved and everybody else to be lost. And those that he picked to be saved Jesus died for you. The rest of us that weren't chosen, he didn't die for us. And so therefore we have limited atonement, Calvin argued. What does the Bible teach about for whom did Jesus die? Let's answer that question by considering that the Bible tells us he died for all men. Let's look at some simple passages. Hebrews 2 and then verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he by the grace of God, are you reading with me now? Might taste death for everyone. For whom did he die? He died for everyone. That's you. That's me. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for every one of us. But that's not all. Consider this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Little children, my little children, these things I write to you that you might not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the perpetuation for our sins and not for ours only. Watch it now, but also for the whole world. For whom did Jesus die? For the entire world, the text says. Paul would word it this way. For the love of Christ compels us to thus judge. That if one died for all, then all died. King James says, then we're all dead. What's his point? Jesus died for as many as are dead in sin. How many are dead in sin? Even Calvin said, he, all men are dead in sin. Well, however many are dead, that's how many Christ died for. He died for everyone is the answer to that question. But let's go a step further now. We're still answering the question, for whom did Jesus shed his blood? And I want to suggest to you that he shed his blood for those under the old covenant, just as much as for those under the new covenant as well. How so? Let's turn to Romans chapter 3, if you will, and in verse 25. Speaking of Christ, whom God set forth to be a perpetuation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Let me illustrate the point and then we'll come back to our text. Well, let's start with the text and then come back to the illustration. Let's go in the other direction. What Paul is saying is that God forgave people under the old covenant. Not because of the sacrifices that were made under the oil covenant, but based on a coming sacrifice of Christ. And when the sacrifice of Christ was made, that demonstrated God's righteousness. How so? You ever buy anything on credit? Go to the appliance store and your refrigerator's gone out and you can't afford a new refrigerator. And you say, how can I get this? And they say, well, you can buy it on credit. And so here's the $1,000 refrigerator, and you say, I, want, I need it today, though. I don't have the money. And they say, well, you take it home with you, but you didn't pay for it. And when you take something you don't pay for, you call it stealing, don't you? But that's not stealing. Why is that? Because you're going to make a payment in the future for that. You're going to pay for it in 90 days. And when you come in in 90 days and put your $1,000 down, that demonstrates that you are righteous and just in having taken... The refrigerator, right? Otherwise, that's stealing. So the payment that's made later demonstrate it was right in you taking what had not been paid for yet. So let's go back to our text here at verse 25. God set forth him to be a perpetuation through blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He's talking about those under the old covenant. How could, God, how could God have forgiven them when there hadn't been a payment made? How could God forgive them when the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't take away sin? Because there was a coming payment. And when the payment was made, that demonstrated God was right in having done that. The payment was met. Consider also the book of Hebrews, if you will, in chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What I'm learning from those texts is that the blood of Jesus Christ flowed backward as well as forward. In other words, the blood of Christ did not just flow forward from the cross for our benefit. It flowed backward for the benefit of those who lived prior to the cross. And that's what Romans 3.25 and chapter 9 and 15 say. Now, here's what I know so far. I know that Jesus shed his blood in his crucifixion. And I also know why he shed his blood. The payment had to be made. And I know those for whom he shed his blood. Let's talk about the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ has to be applied. What do I mean it has to be applied? Well, it has to be applied in this sense. That Jesus died for all men, the text tells us. We just saw that, didn't we? Hebrews 2. 1 John 2. He died for every man. And yet, not all men will be saved. Look at Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus said. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said most of the world is going to be lost, but he died for everybody, I thought. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not even religious people are all going to be saved. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So I learn he died for everybody, but not all will be saved. That tells me then that the blood of Jesus Christ has to be applied. Just because Jesus died for me doesn't mean I've come in contact with the blood. The blood has to be applied. How is the blood of Christ applied? Well, let's consider the fact that salvation is in Christ. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, if you will. And I want you to notice three texts that are parallel. If you haven't already opened your Bible, perhaps there's one in the pew. Let's grab one if we can and look at Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7. Ephesians 1 and in verse 7. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. All right, here's what we see. In him, that is in Christ... We have redemption through His blood. I have the what that takes place, where it takes place, and how it takes place. What takes place? We're redeemed. Where? In Christ. How? By the blood. Let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now... Are you reading with me? In Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are made near or nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, what's going on? Here's what takes place. You're made near. That's the same as being redeemed. Where in Christ? That's the same as being in him by the blood. That's the same as the blood of chapter 1 in verse 7. Drop down three more verses. Look at verse 16. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. That he might reconcile both in one body. How? By the cross. Here's what takes place, where it takes place, and by the cross. You see, the idea of redemption, being made near and being redeemed, is talking about the same thing. Being in Christ, in Him, and in one body is the same thing. By the blood and by the cross, where the blood was shed, is all the same thing. So what are we talking about? We're talking about being saved by the blood of Christ. But where? In the body or in Christ. The question is, how do I get into the body? How do I get into Christ? Galatians 3.27 said, that is, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. How do I get into Christ? I am baptized into Christ. How do I get into the one body? First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body. So you see how that I contact the blood. I am saved in Christ by the blood, but I get into Christ by my obedience. I am saved by the blood of Christ in the one body. But I get into the one body through my obedience. That's how the blood is applied. But furthermore, let's illustrate the point by considering the blood is the what. Obedience is merely the when. Sometimes our religious friends push back and tell us baptism could not be essential. Even any other form of obedience, repentance would not be essential because the Bible says we're saved by the blood. Have you ever been involved in a discussion when, when you say, well, you know, the Bible teaches that you must be baptized in order to be saved, and here's the passage. Well, that can't be true. Well, why can't, well, because here's another passage over here that says you're saved by the blood, as if those are contradictory. they're not contradictory at all. The blood is merely the what, the baptism is the when we contact that blood. Let me illustrate. The Bible says we're washed by the blood. We read that a moment ago, didn't we? That he washed us and cleansed us with his own blood? We're washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ, the text said. But Ananias told Saul, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Are those contradictory? Not at all. Not at all. The blood is what cleanses us. The baptism is merely the wind. We contact the blood. We saw that a moment ago. We're baptized into the Christ or into the one body. Here's another passage. Matthew 26 and verse 28, Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins. But Peter said in Acts 2 and in verse 38, you repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Same expression in the original and in the English. What does that mean? That mean that's a contradiction? Not at all. The baptism is merely the when I contact the benefits of the blood of Christ. I am cleansed by the blood of Christ. When I meet that in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the fifth thing I want to consider about the blood of Christ. And that is that the church was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood was the price that was paid. Listen to this carefully. That there might be a New Testament church. There's some of our own brethren who minimize the church. They downplay the church. They ridicule the church. And we hear the plea today, what we need to hear is preaching about the man and not the plan. We want to hear about Christ and not the church. Because we are the church. We don't need to be preaching ourselves. We need to be preaching about the man and not the plan is what we need to hear. The church is not important. And I want to tell you in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, I speak concerning Christ and the church. He wrote about the church. He spoke about the church. He preached about the church. And I want you to consider that this was the price that was paid that there might be a New Testament church. And when you ridicule the church of our Lord and you downplay the church of our Lord, you're ridiculing and you're downplaying the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that was the price that was paid. If I took $20,000 and I bought a vehicle with that $20,000, and I'm proud of that vehicle, and I show you the vehicle and I say, look what I bought. I bought this, this used truck for $20,000, practically new. I want you to take a look at it and you ridicule my truck and you make fun of my truck and you tell me how worthless that truck is. You know what you're doing? You're telling me you're ridiculing the value that I paid for it. You're, you're, you're ridiculing the value of the $20,000 that I put into that truck. Aren't you? And when we ridicule the church of our Lord, we're ridiculing the price that was paid for it. Consider this in Acts twenty and verse twenty-eight. This is Paul talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He said, "Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God." Where did it come from? Which he purchased with his own blood. What was the price paid that there might be a church of God? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been purchased. We're a purchased people. We're a redeemed people. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19? Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, a price was paid to buy you back. You were sold under sin, a slave of sin. And a price was paid to buy you back. What was that price? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been purchased according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you're bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. A price has been paid. It tells you the value that's placed upon the church. Back to my illustration. If I gave $20,000 for the truck, that tells you the value I placed on it, doesn't it? Wouldn't it seem absurd if I said, now, here's this truck, and, and it's worthless. It's not worth a dollar. But I paid 20000 for it, and I want you to know that. Doesn't that kind of say that I'm uh, absurd? It tells you something of the value the Lord placed on the church of our Lord. And any value and benefit that we get out of the blood of Christ will be obtained in the body of Christ. Now suppose you take $100,000, $200,000 and you purchase a house. Any value you get out of that 100000 or 200000 or whatever the amount may be will be obtained in getting it out of the house, won't it? And if the price of the blood of Christ is what was paid for there to be a church of our Lord, any benefit I get out of that will be in the body of Christ. I must be in the body in order to benefit from the blood. Let's consider number six. The New Testament was dedicated by the blood. What was accomplished by the blood of Christ? I'm saved by the blood. He purchased the church with his blood. And we have a church because of the blood of Christ, but we have the New Testament because of the blood of Christ. The book you hold in your hand tonight, the New Testament, would be worthless were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ. Consider this in Hebrews chapter 9, if you will, and in verse 15. You are familiar with this text. And I want you to watch for this point. He's going to say because Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, because Jesus shed his blood, you now have an effective New Testament that is law. Had he not died, it wouldn't be law. And that blood dedicated the new covenant just like the old covenant was dedicated by blood. Begin at verse 15 with me, if you will. For this reason, he is also the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Sound familiar? That's where we were a minute ago. Look at verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity to be the death of the testator. We all understand that. You write a last will and testament, it is worthless until you die. That's when it becomes law. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power while the testator lives. If I write a last will and testament and leave money to you, you don't get it until I die. You understand that. What's his point about the Old Testament? Verse 15 or verse uh, 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. What's the point? When, when the Old Testament was dedicated, he took the blood of goats and of calves and he dedicated the Old Covenant. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, the New Testament law has become law and has become dedicated. We have a new covenant and it's in force and we have the promises of the new covenant because Jesus shed his blood. But let's go a step further. I want to share with you that we have now a memorial of his blood. Great things are usually set, there's some memorial set up of some great accomplishment or something historical. There's a memorial, lest we forget. The day, men and women were gathered around in New York City, the memorial to 9-11, lest we forget. And there's a memorial that God has left, lest we forget, the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 11, as he quotes the Lord when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The purpose is to remember lest we forget. Wouldn't it be a shame that Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary, and I'm saved by the blood, and then uh, a year passes and another year passes and another year passes, and it suddenly dawns on us that, you know what, we hadn't thought much about the blood of Christ in a while. We hadn't thought about that in a while. God has given us a memorial lest we forget. In Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. What I'm suggesting to you is that there is no Christian who should go more than a week without thinking about the blood. You may go more than a week and more than two weeks, more than a month or two months or more than a year for hearing a sermon on the blood of Christ. There is no excuse for any child of God saying, you know what, I hadn't thought much about the blood of Christ in a while. You should have been thinking about that yesterday. That's what the Lord's Supper was all about. You should have been thinking about him shedding his blood and the sacrifice it was made and the payment was made and what was accomplished through that blood. And then next Lord Day, you should be thinking the same thing. The Lord left us a memorial, lest we forget the blood of Jesus Christ. You might not hear another sermon on the blood of Christ, but you ought to keep remembering the blood of Christ because we have a memorial. Here's the last thing and the lesson will be yours that we show respect that we have for the blood and how we live. You don't show respect for the blood of Christ by, say, wearing a t-shirt that has the, a picture of the crucifixion and bloodshed and you let everybody know you believe in the blood of Christ. I'll tell you how you show you respect for the blood of Christ. It's how you live your life. How do I know? Let's listen to what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 26. He said, if we sin willfully after that we've received a knowledge of the truth, in other words, after we become Christians, we decide we're going to turn back to the world. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You've rejected the only one there is. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, how much worse punishment do you suppose he should be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, are you watching? and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. You see what he just said? What he said was, the person who decides I'm going to go back into the world and I'm going to live whatever way I want to live and he goes back into sin, he's trampled underfoot the Son of God and he's treated the blood of the covenant as a common thing, a worthless thing, an unholy thing, worthless, I don't need it. He's not going around proclaiming and saying, I want you all to know I don't believe in the blood of Christ. I want you to know I think it's worthless. He demonstrates that by how he's living. And the point is that how we live shows the respect we have for the blood of Christ. Do you respect the blood of Christ? You respect the blood of Christ by the way you live. Harmony with the will of God. And when we turn away from God, we're showing we have no use for the blood of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen in our study tonight? We've been talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. More could be said, obviously. We've tried to give a summary of what the Bible teaches about the blood of Jesus Christ. We've tried to answer the question of the crucifixion, that Jesus shed his blood. We talked about the story of the crucifixion and why he shed his blood. He shed his blood because a penalty had to be paid. And then he offered it before the throne of God. We talked about for whom he shed his blood. He shed his blood for every man. And we talked about how the blood of Jesus Christ has to be applied. We must come in contact with the blood. Talked about how the church was purchased with the blood. And the New Testament was dedicated by the blood. And God left us a memorial lest we forget the blood. And we show respect for the blood in how we live our lives. May God help us to always remember the effectiveness of the blood of Christ. Have you come in contact tonight with the blood of Christ? If you're not a Christian, you're not in the body of Christ then you're not in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you be saved? Jesus died for you. Would you come in contact with the blood by your obedience to the gospel? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? While together we stand and sing.